our next guest, Dr. Robert Niemeyer. He directs the Portland Institute for Loss and Transition and maintains an active counseling and coaching practice. And he's published over 500 journal articles, book chapters, as well as 30 books, including techniques of Greek therapy. And he serves as the editor of Death Studies. And he is an amazing guy, Dr. Niemeyer. And we are so happy to have you on, Bob. I met Robert Niemeyer right after 9-11. I went to New York City to work with Columbia University and the fire department with people that had lost someone in the World Trade Center. There were 343 firefighters that died that day. Robert Niemeyer trained our group and he, he trained us on how to help people, how to empower people, help people to find meaning after loss and hope after loss. He has had a profound impact on my life and on the way I work, and he has mentored thousands of people and is one of the leaders in our field, and I am so honored to introduce him today. Hi, Robert, a.k.a. Bob Niemeyer. <laughs> oh, it's so good to talk to you both. We were thinking of this segment about giving a voice to grief and recovery, uh, Bob, because you have done that all your life. In fact, uh, you lost your dad at age 11, right? You're right about that. Uh, my father died by suicide uh, after a, a, a hard course of a couple of years, Gloria, where um, he had experienced encroaching blindness. I think he experienced business failure. And there probably were also darker demons uh, haunting him that I could not understand as a, a little boy, just you know, edging toward adolescence. Um, I have a different view of it now and maybe a deeper view, but with his falling silence so early, I'll never know the full story from his perspective. Uh, that certainly launched me and my family into an early encounter with death of a, a very traumatizing kind. My grandmother had died in our home as well just two years before, and that was probably part of what my dad was feeling was the, uh, the long shadow of his mother's death against a, a complicated uh, shared history of um, so I do think that whether we are aware of the impact of loss in our lives, it does, uh, it does have an impact, sometimes transgenerationally. Mm -hmm. And of course, the losses in our own lives then, um, I wouldn't say our, our losses shape us, but we shape ourselves in light of our loss mm, I like by that. the by the attitude that we take toward it and, and the meaning we make of it. Yeah, and the meaning making. I know you talk a lot about the meaning making. I, I wanna say that my thought about you is, I just have to think of gifts, uh, gifts of love that through your life and starting with that, your losses, uh, you have given so many gifts to people. I appreciate that. It's a characteristically generous sentiment on your part to, uh, to offer that. You know, at the end of the day, we are all experts on our own experience. Mm -hmm. And often academic, scholarly, theoretical work um, is detached from that experience. It's not grounded. It's not anchored in the soil of our being. For those of us who do the work of grief counseling or grief therapy, um, we need to recognize that in some ways the teachers are not in our textbooks. The teachers are in the room or they're in the virtual room with us if we're doing telehealth. It's the clients who are the experts on their own lives. That's what I took away when you trained us, how to, how to, to connect with people that are grieving and also empower them. Because when we've had a loss, as you know, and as I know, and as my mom knows, you know, it makes us feel hopeless, helpless, disempowered, and like victims. 
Yeah. And, you know, moving our grief to a certain, to a different place where we feel like we're being of service. We feel like we're being empowered. We feel like we're paying tribute to our loved one. It's really the beginning. It was the beginning for me to hope again. Well, that's uh, lovely also to invoke the idea of being open to hope, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think we are open to hope when we are open to the wisdom of our own emotional experience. That when grief feels like this threatening grim reaper figure uh, that is looming over us, then we are alienated from our own deepest sources of wisdom. But when we can, befriend death, befriend grief, and take them as potential, you know, Buddhas that we meet in the road, uh, kind of wise figures, uh, when we can take the opportunity in therapy or in conversation with someone who knows us and loves us to say, what's my grief about really? What is it telling me about what I need now deeply at a level even beneath words? What do I need now so, in the aftermath of this grief? And, and then what am I ready for in connection with that need? Like, for example, I might experience a deep loneliness. And, you know, if we look at that truly and fully, then we may recognize um, our, our great yearning for connection to other people, but we might not be ready for that. Maybe our sense of loyalty to the dead precludes our stepping toward others as fully as we like. So, so, Bob, I love this. What do I need and what, do, what am I ready for? I'm yeah. wondering if when you look back at your 11-year-old self after your dad died, what did you need Ooh, and what were you ready for? That's really a great question. It's a very fair one to turn it uh, on me in that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> Bob's like, okay, Heidi. <laughs> you know, the, 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 best, the best therapeutic questions are the ones that leave you a little uncomfortable and not knowing the answer immediately. And I think that's where I am with this. Um, I, I needed a level of security mm -hmm. uh, that I didn't have. I needed not to be some things or to be positioned in some ways. I needed not to be my mother's little man in the family. I needed to be a boy. I needed to be taken care of. I needed to be held. I needed the concept of suicide to be addressed literally and not swept under a carpet. Um, um, I needed a mom who didn't have to resort so tragically to um, decades of alcoholism to manage her grief. Uh, I needed conversation. I needed truth-telling. Um, and I also, I needed more wisdom than I had about life and loss. Um, and, you know, in some ways, I suppose our lives are the answers to the deep questions for which we we never really found a response. And so I think my life has probably been in pursuit of those questions. Well, well, that's powerful because I think there's a lot of children out there that need those things and don't have a place to, you know, talk about it. I know after the families at 9-11 that I worked with, one of the things that we saw was because the father had died, the firefighter father, like you said, the children were often parentified. They were often the little men or the little women of the house. Right. Well, it's understandable because families have their own structure. And uh, of course, there are many structures. But it isn't surprising that a parent who feels deeply bereft by the loss of her partner yeah. um, feels the void. And 
turns to the next available person who has a level of commitment and engagement with the family to partly step into the role that's been vacated. And, and that may mean that some of us get parentified a little quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you having lost your brother, right? right. That, uh, you were older than I was, but you were still of uh, a youngish age. And uh, you might have been called into uh, a different uh, place in the family constellation by that, uh, then, you know. Absolutely. I, I, I always say losing a parent or a sibling is, is a double loss. Because you not only I not only lost Scott, but I lost the emotional availability of my parents, which I could certainly understand. They were trying to grieve the death of their son, and I was 20 and felt the need to kind of help the family and put my own grief on hold for a little bit to help the family out. Sure, you said we it's it's understandable. What do you feel about what's going on today, right now, and what do you think the major challenges are for people who've had a loss? We are in some sense in a in a surreal place, aren't we? Um, when our everything about uh, who we are in our hearts, uh, the kind of social beings we have evolved to be, um, tells us that it's imperative for us to tend and befriend those we love at a time of real need. And there is no need that is more genuine and uh, in some ways just more, more deeply human than when we face our own last days. And of course, I know countless people, as you also do during this entire period of time, who are unable to sit in that uncomfortable vinyl chair alongside their loved one's bed uh, during hospitalization, um, to be able to hold their hands, to kiss their cheek, uh, to see the smile or frown uh, on their face because they're wearing a mask, or you are, and um, you know, or you're present only electronically. Uh, and this is true whether our loved ones are hospitalized or institutionalized in a context where they're suffering COVID-19 with uncertain prospects of survival or certain prospects of death, or whether they are in those facilities for entirely different reasons. Uh, I have a, a friend whose mother was admitted to hospital in New York for an abscessed tooth. You know, a week and a half later, COVID rolled in. A week later, she was uh, on a ventilator, and a couple of days later, she was dead. Um, and it had nothing to do with COVID except that the context of care precluded engagement of a caring kind. Uh, a neighbor of mine whose um, husband was hospitalized for uh, cardiac arrest and underwent quadruple bypass surgery. You know, she said she hasn't been able to visit him from the time she dropped him off at the hospital. He's still in intensive care. And she said, you know, we use the phone Mm -hmm. to try to maintain contact with him. But she said that, you know, the the feelings uh, don't go through. You see the images, you hear the words, but the feelings don't get transmitted. So these are very special challenges that obtain in this era that in a way reverse decades of development of more family-centered care. And we know that among the, you know, if we want to use a scientific word, the evidence-based risk factors for a more complicated, anguished, prolonged grief include all of that unfinished business of being unable to be there for our loved ones in the way we want, unable to affirm their worth, unable to, in some way, 
harvest their legacy, to have conversations with them about what matters in their life, what they want to tell and teach others they're leaving behind. We don't have a chance to extend forgiveness or to ask for it. We, there's so many factors that, uh, that make uh, dying and grieving in this era much more complicated. Um, I, you know, I'm thinking about when you're talking about that. I wanted you to make sure that you told people how they can get in touch with you. We have something called the Portland Institute. And if you look at portlandinstitute.org, what you will see is, especially if you are a counselor, a therapist, um, a nurse or healthcare professional, a social worker, um, what we do is we offer training in grief therapy at a sophisticated level. Uh, this year, we've really launched a, a very um, rich uh, program for online training, in addition to the on-site training. Well, I mean, people can pursue certification in grief therapy as meaning reconstruction, a meaning-making-oriented approach. And, and so that's one way, if you, if you want some resources, uh, we'd love to have you uh, explore our community of learning. The important thing is the, the reaching out to find community, build community. Um, and initially that may need to be online and there are some real advantages to it. Sometimes the loss we've suffered may be the only one of its kind in the network of people we know. But boy, if we do a Google search, we will find a support group for people just like us. Um, we can also find therapists who are really skillful at telehealth and who don't just take it as an opportunity for psychoeducation, right? To teach us a few ideas, but who will really deeply listen to our heart of pain uh, and help us find a way through that terrain of loss. So I, I love that, our heart of pain. I, I love it too. And, and I would say, please reach out and look at what, what Dr. Robert Niemeyer's got out there because he will, your information validates, acknowledges what people are going through and yet also teaches them not only how to survive, but how to thrive. Because you know, oftentimes after a loss, we don't know how we're gonna go on. And so he's, Robert's got a lot of good information out there. You've been an amazing voice for Hope After Loss and we appreciate you coming on today. The pleasure was mine. Uh, thank you both of you for all of you bring. I've learned that it helped me to help others, to know I'm not the only one, put one foot in front of the other, find a life. Adding hope to the darkness, you start on the trip to recovery. Reach deep down inside and say, I am gonna live on. We laugh, we cry, and remember. Hope without action doesn't work. Hope with action can change the world. We always say, if you've lost hope, please lean on ours.